voyant par chez nous, se sont fait rendez-vous. Ils sont réunis ensemble pour un voyage à entreprendre. Oh oui donc, faites vos sacs pour partir pour le Klondike. Quand le train est arrivé, le conducteur est débarqué. Il dit à nos voyageurs, embrassez-vous. Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode, I read through about 100 pages of the works of great American writers using the Library of America as my source material. In this episode, we'll be continuing our look at Jack London's short stories, specifically some of his tales about the Klondike, about the gold rush, about the Eskimos and their interactions with the whites and, and these kinds of themes. So. Uh, I'll jump right into it. Uh, but you may want to go back and listen to my first episode on these Klondike tales. I looked at six of them in the previous episode. If you're just joining us, you can go back there. Or even better, go back and listen to all of my episodes on Jack London. I've been doing this for a couple months now. Um, and we're nearing the end. Um, but these stories help to bring together a lot of the themes that I've been talking about in terms of Jack London, such as his socialism, his views on individualism, his views on social Darwinism. All these things are apparent in the stories of the Klondike. So let's start with a quote. This is from The God of His Fathers, a story from 1906, I believe. On every hand stretched the forest primeval the home of noisy comedy and silent tragedy. Here the struggle for survival continued to wage with all its ancient brutality. Britain and Russian were still to overlap in the land of the rainbow's end, and this was the very heart of it. Nor had Yankee gold yet purchased its vast domain. The wolf pack still clung to the flank of the caribou herd, singling out the weak and the big with calf, and pulling them down as remorselessly as if it were a thousand thousand generations into the past. The sparse aborigines still acknowledged the rule of their chiefs and medicine men, drove out bad spirits, burned their witches, fought with neighbors, and ate their enemies with a relish which spoke well of their bellies. But it was at the moment when the Stone Age was drawing to a close. Already, over unknown trails with charterless wilderness, were the harbingers of steel arriving, fair-faced, blue-eyes, indomitable men, incarnations of the unrest of their race. By accident or design, single-handed, and in twos and threes they came from no one knew whether, and fought or died or passed on, no one knew whence. The priests raged against them, the chiefs called forth their fighting men, and stone clashed with steel but to little purpose. Like water seeping from some mighty reservoir, they trickled through the dark forests and forest path, treading the highways and bark canoes, and with their moccasined feet breaking trail for the wolf dogs. They came in a great breed, and their mothers were many, but their fur-clad denizens of the Northlands had this yet to learn. So many an unsung wanderer fought his last and died under the cold fire of the aurora, and so did his brothers in burning sands and reeking jungles, and they came to continue to do so until the fullness of time the destiny of the race be achieved. So that sets up a lot of the, of the theme that we, one of the major themes we see in the Klondike stories, which is the interaction between the Eskimos, the Indians, let's just say Indians, um, and and the whites who came in to exploit this region. So these are stories of empire before there are anything else. Yeah, they're stories of survival and they're stories of the struggle against nature. And many of his earlier Klondike tales did that. But by the time you get to his stories of, of 1906, 1907, 1908, they're much more about the collision between 
whites and Indians in this part of the world and this 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 final frontier in North America. Now, our one of our we got several characters here. We got in this story the God of His Fathers. Um, we have Baptiste the Red, who is an Indian chief. And he's part of this transitional generation too. So it, it's kind of a new world for all kind of experience that we see in these, these stories. Yeah, you got whites encountering this frontier, this struggle with nature, new animal life, different people, you know, having to undergo almost this Turneresque, re, you know, remaking of civilization on the frontier. But then you have the Indians who are encountering these whites, their lives are changing. They're being exposed to new religions, new technologies, new economic arrangements, and all that. So it, it's really a new world for both groups. So it's a frontier for both sides, even the people that lived there initially. So Baptiste Red is one of these. He knows whites very well. He, he falls in love with a Frenchman's daughter. Um, and then his they have a child together, but his love falls, dies during childbirth. And he takes the child to his wife. Let's just call her wife. I, I'm not sure if they marry. I, I forget. I, I don't think it's acknowledged that they marry. But they have this kid. He takes it to the mother's people, the French, to be raised. And eventually she's killed as a, you know, out of some hatred against Indians or something. And Baptiste Red grows to hate Christianity and hate the religion of white people, especially he hates their hypocrisy. This idea that you'll be forgiven in the afterlife and not in this world is something that really bothers him. So Baptiste Red is, is, a, is a transitional figure in this encounter between whites and, and Indians. Um, our next character here is Stockard. Hey, Stockard, and he's, he's with his family. He's camped trying to find gold or whatever, you know, or he's hunt, he's trading, but he's he's close to the Indian camp. And then we have Sturgis Owen who comes, and he's a missionary, essentially coming in to try to convert the Indians. And this sets up the story. What happens in the tale is Baptiste Red approaches Stockard and basically tries to get rid of him. Um, says, you're not wanted here, um, but I'll let you stay if you renounce your God. Um, and, you know, it's, he's like, okay, whatever. And then a little bit later, Sturgis Owen comes. And Sturgis Ogen, Owen accuses Hay Stockard of basically not being a good Christian. He calls him, to you, Hay Stockard, blasphemer and Philistine, greetings. In your heart is the lust of mammon, and in your mind cunning devils. In your tent, this woman who you live with in adultery, yet of these diverse sins, even here in the wilderness, I, Sturgis Owen, apostle of the God, bid you to repent and cast you your iniquities, end quote. So in this very brief uh, dialogue between these two, we get this contrast between kind of the desire for this idea that most whites there are there for money, right? Searching out mammon. But then you have others who are seeking out conversion to convert these people to convert the Indians. Um, and essentially what happens is Baptiste the Red approaches both of them saying, if you don't renounce your God, you're going to you know, we're going to kill you. You have to leave or renounce your God. You can't stay here. And they, when they don't do, they don't really act on this. And then Baptiste the Red attacks and with his troops kills off uh, the families and kills off everyone except Owen and Stockard. Owen Sturgis and Stockard are the only left alive after all the fight, including Stockard's like partner and, and children. 
and child. So they're all killed. And then he asks each of them, he says to Sturgis Owen, do you renounce your God? And he does. The missionary renounces his God. And then he turns to Stockard, who we don't really at this point believe has much religious conviction, asks him to renounce his God. And he says, no, I stick to the God of my fathers. And he's killed for that. And at the end of the tale, we're given this idea that Sturgis is sent back, Sturgis Owen is sent back to the whites as a prophet, as a missionary of the Indians' godlessness. And I'll, I'll give you that quote directly. He went down to the river that he might carry to the Russians the message of Baptiste the Red, in whose country there was no God. So that's what the story is about. It's about religious conflict and about the, the violence of, of the encounter between whites and Indians, about the resentments that come up and how these resentments have are sometimes justified or shaped through through religion, but also the weakness of religion in this brutal frontier. And how in Sturgis Owen, when facing this violence, is unable to stand to it, uh, stand to his faith. Okay, so next, um, let me just check something quick. I think I got the date wrong on the God of His Fathers. Yeah, that was actually 1901, so I was completely wrong about the date. I, I had my notes in two different places. But the stories we're looking at today were published between 1901 and 1908. So a, a long stretch of time. So the stuff we looked at in the first six Klondike stories we looked at were all published like in 1899, 1900. So not, not, quite, as broad, uh, not quite as broad a period of time then, but the, these were, uh, you know, carried over to more of Jack London's career. Anyways, Batard is next. Batard, 1902. This is a, a very sh short and, and simple and focused story about the conflict between a man and his dog, or a dog and his master is probably a better way of putting it. Both are described by the narrator as devils. And we get here many of the themes of White Fang, uh, which actually would be written a little bit later than this story, but the, the violence between dog and master is something we got a lot of in, in White Fang. And in The Call of the Wild, too. And it's here as well. And there's just a, the, the part of this relationship between dog and master is hatred. And because he hated him with exceeding bitter hate, Leclerc brought, bought Batard and gave him a shameful name. And for five years, the twain adventured across the Northland from St. Michael's to the Yukon Delta to the head ranches of the Pelly and even as far as the Pence River. Akabaska and the Great Slave, and they acquired a reputation for uncompromising wickedness, the like of which had never attached itself to man and dog. Batar, him not knew his father, hence his name, but as John Hamlin knew, the father was a great great timber wolf, but his mother but the mother of Batard, as he dimly remembered her, was snarling, bickering, obscene, husky, full fronted, and heavy chested, with a malign eye, cat like grip on life, and a and a genius for trickery and evil. There was neither faith nor trust in her. Her treachery alone could be replied upon, relied upon, and her wild-wooded armors attested to her general depravity. Much of the evil and much of the strength were there in these. Batard's... Um, okay, that's enough. You get the idea. Um, so he's descended from a devil, and he himself is a devil. And we get a picture here of the dependence and hatred in many hierarchical relationships. We've got the master and slave, the worker-boss, or even the husband and wife relationship. Hierarchical, 
based on the threat of violence. And in the end, violence is all there is deep down. I, I suppose London is trying to make a broader point about all these relationships that are based on hierarchy or rooted in, in violence. Now, this doesn't mean that we're all doomed to be like this. We know of positive relationships between animals and, and humans in other of his stories or even relationships based on solidarity between people. So he doesn't say all our relations are doomed like this, but it, still many of our relations are troubled by this mutual hatred and violence. And in the story, we, we get some of their brief look at some of their adventures. And, and at the end, Batard kills his master. But this doesn't get him anywhere. Just pure rage and violence doesn't give him freedom, doesn't give him any type of liberty because he's just killed off by other humans after he does this. He has no skills that aren't rooted in his dependency on his master or his hatred. And he's killed soon after. So that's that's the tale. It's, it's essentially saying, yeah, these relationships are based on hatred, but that hatred doesn't get us really anywhere. It's not a really a very effective form of resistance. Kind of like how in The Call of the Wild, Buck is able to use his power to dominate the, the dog team, right? But that doesn't get him freedom. What gets him freedom in the end is the love of, was his love, essentially. And it's the same with White Fang, too, who is basically raised to be a brute and a monster, and it's love that gets him out of there. So, you know, I, I think he's trying to say here that this this kind of violent resistance doesn't get you near there. And this is a theme he explored in other of his stories, such as in The Iron Heel, he doesn't really see just the mad rage of the working class as a good path to liberation. Uh, you have it in The Sea Wolf, where the mutiny fails. Uh, the People of the Abyss, although it's nonfiction, kind of hints at this too, that there's this simmering rage in the population, but he doesn't see how this can actually achieve socialism. So this tale could be about socialism in a way, um, although you might have to stretch it a little bit, but maybe not too much. I, I do think that this relationship with Batard and his master is it, shaped in many ways that London sees a lot of our relations, social relationships as being framed. So next we have The League of Old Men. This story is actually reminds me of Chinago in a way, which is a, a later story about the Pacific and about Chinese workers there. It's also like it has some call out to White Fang too, because in White Fang you have the law. Uh, like in White Fang and like in Chinago, the law itself is on trial in this story. It's a story about how indifferent man can be to each other. It's a story about the violence in this relationship between whites and Indians and how this encounter is anything but, but peaceful. It's about the changes that whites bring to the Indians of the Yukon. And, you know, the story is, is told rather cold and with a, a deal of precision. You don't have that much pathos here. Um, and you don't have any really concern about justice, too. It's just like the wheels of the machinery of the law are, are going here. And that, that's kind of what we have with the, China, with the Chinago, too, which we'll look at probably in the... Yeah, I think we look at that in the next, next episode. Basically, we have a, here a man named Imber who's on trial for his life. He's a very old Indian, and he's a notorious terrorist, essentially. Um, and he tells his story... In, in the jail. And we get a bit of it, and I'll, I'll give you a little taste of, of his story. 
it's actually a, a pretty long story covering around four pages. I won't give you all of it, but I'll try to give a highlight or two. It's pretty clear from the story that the central event in Imber's life is the arrival of the first white man. And he goes into a lot of detail about how these whites came, how the first ones came. You know, quote, came the third man, third white man with a great with great wealth and all manner of wonderful food and things. And 20 of our strongest dogs he took from us in trade. Yet what of the presents and pro great promises? 10 of our young hunters did he take with him on a journey which fared no man knew where. And it said they died in the snow of the ice mountain where man had never been or in the hills of silence which were beyond the edge of the earth. Be that it may, dogs and young hunters were never seen again by the white fish people. And more white men came and with the years and ever with pay and presence, they led the young men away with them. And sometimes the young men came back with strange tales and dangers and toils in the lands beyond the Pelis. And sometimes they did not come back. And we said, if they be unafraid of life, these white men, it is because they have many lives. But we be few by the white fish and the young men go away no more. But the young men did go away and the young women went also. And we were very wroth. It is true we ate flour and salt broke pork and drank tea which was a great delight only when we could not get the tea it was very bad and we became short of speech and quick of anger so we grew to hunger for these things and white men brought in trade 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 all the time it was trade one winter we sold our meat for clocks that would not go and watches with broken guts and f files worn smooth and pistols without cartridges and worthless then came the famine and we were without meat and two score died ere the break of spring and now we've grown weak so th that sums up, you know, like a lot of Native American history, actually. This growing dependence on trade, on whites, and how this transformed social relations within the Indian communities. You, you could tell a similar story about the Iroquois, for instance, of how they, you know, the, the beaver wars, right? And how these beaver wars emerged out of this need to, to meet this demand of whites for, for, um, beaver hides, right? And, and really f fundamentally uh, mis restructuring and transforming the lives of, of the Indians. So that's the big theme of the story. But eventually he goes and he becomes a terrorist and he starts killing whites and he's he's brought, he finally surrenders himself as an old man um, and he's going to be executed. So that's that. It's, it's a really good story on this theme of of the negative impact whites were having on on the Indian communities. And we're going to get more of that certainly in the Pacific Tales too. So that's the League of Old Men. Right, gener obviously from the title, we, we got the sense of a generational conflict too, right? How the older people who know the history and experienced it, they have the resentment and the hatred a lot more than the younger generations who kind of take it for granted that the white people are there and they try to benefit from it or or you know profit from it but that's just life for them they they don't remember how it was like before and him being old means he's going to be part of that last generation that remembered what was what life was like before the whites arrived next we have love of life originally published in 1905 and this is a real good one uh, the love of life is a survival tale Basically, it's about an unnamed man who struggles to survive in the Yukon after left, being left alone by his companion, Bill. Uh, he like hurts his, hurts his foot or something, you know, his ankle, sprains his ankle, and Bill leaves him alone. He faces hunger and injury 
And finally, in the in a big conflict, he faces the wolf. Uh, it's a long tale. It's it's over twenty pages or so. So there's a lot of lot to this story, but maybe not that much really happens. It's him kind of trust trying to survive. So it, it's kind of it would. I don't know if it's been filmed, but it would would make a, a good short film or or even a longer one if you fleshed it out a little bit. If you like that kind of survival tale stories. The biggest threat, though, he faces is this wolf. And as he's starving, and, and you feel how hard it is to die, actually, in some of these environments. Other tales like To Build a Fire show you how easy it is to die, but this guy dies hard. Uh, and there's a wolf that's also dying hard who's starving and tra tracking him. And there's even a moment, and these are some of the most memorable moments of, of the story, is the struggle of, of, for life between the wolf and the man. Both are desperate, both are hungry, and both need the other one to die if they're going to survive, right? The man, because... You know, he can't, he doesn't want to be eaten by the wolf. And maybe he'll eat the wolf if he gets the chance. But the the wolf needs him to die so he can also survive and eat because he's the only game nearby. And wolves don't really attack living humans usually. Although Jacqueline is not consistent on this. In White Fang, for instance, you have wolves attacking living humans. But they're both desperate and they're both waiting for the other to die and they're just like the wolves tracking this human. But death comes so slow and this will to live in both is great. And the story is called The Love of Life. So it's all about this will to survive. And at one point, the wolf is literally living off the blood dropped from this wounded prospector as he's, trying, as he's going ahead. You know, he's licking the, the blood from the, the, from, the, from the snow. Anyways, he survives. He's able to kill the wolf. In a, in a struggle and he survives and he's finally found by a ship and while on the ship you kind of kind of have a humorous ending because on the ship he acts very strange and he's hoarding food you know all the lessons of want in the wilderness are learned and he's protecting against famine he's always got this worry so he's got he's got essentially ptsd about this experience and one way it manifests in him is this hoarding of food because he's i think he's going to run out so that's the tale the the love of life it's it's uh, one of my favorite in this set of of, of Klondike tales. It's kind of a very classic Jack London tale of survival. Now, 1906, or sorry, 1906, he writes or he publishes The Wit of Porpatook. Um, a really great story. We have a female lead who makes mischief. Uh, one you know, one criticism I've had of Jack London is he doesn't have these always these strong female characters. They're not very often, anyways. Um, but we have uh, this is really a story of three care four characters, I guess. We have El Ilsu, who's the brilliant daughter of an Eskimo chief who's educated by Europeans. So right away we have another ex example of the impact of whites on on the Indians. We have Kakena, who's the chief El, El Ilsu's father. We have Porpatuk, who's an Indian who has benefited greatly from the Klondike Gold Rush, and he's become a rich man through trade and interactions with the whites. And then our final character is, what's his name? He's basically Elsug's boyfriend, the one she should marry. Akun, Akun. So these are our four characters. Now, Elsu is off with the Europeans being educated kind of in one of these boarding schools. Meanwhile, what she, 
she gets news that her brother dies and her father wants her to come back. And so she comes back to the tribe. And at this point, we get the story of what's happened to Kakena, uh, especially his interaction with Portatuk. He's deeply in debt to Portatuk. That's what it comes down to. He, he wants to live up this life. He wants to enjoy life, especially with the arrival of, of the products that whites bring with them. He wants to enjoy all these things. So he he goes deeply into debt and he can't pay off these debts. But Portatuk is always there willing to, to pay him. Poor, but both work closely with the whites and were involved in the gold, gold rush, but Portatuk saves, invests, and schemes. Kakena spends and wastes, essentially. Elsung brings in a Western influence as well, but from a different point of view. And her even her beauty is described as being mixed between the Indian and the West, uh, like in her dress and even her, the, just her physical features are described as, as rather mixed. Although I think she's, she's pure Indian. But somehow, like, the, this kind of the whiteness has been imposed on her a little bit by her education, I think, is London's point. So Portatuk is supporting the royal family through all this lending. He plots, though, to marry Elsung, and he wants to use the debt as leverage over Kakena to do that. And so Kakena knows he's about to die, and he has a death feast. And so he gets all together. The tribe spends all this money, has this massive feast celebrating his life. During the feast... Kakena approaches Portatuk about the payment of the debts. And he's like, okay, I'm going to die soon, so let's let's pay off the debts. And Portatuk goes through what he owes. And the total is a little bit shy of $16,000. Um, and Kakena always rounds it up. He hears the number and he says, just make it 16000 So we'll do the same. Just say it called 16000 Kakena suggests paying it off in the afterlife. And Portatuk says, I don't deal in the afterlife, man. You know, I deal in this world and you got to pay it off in this world with something I can get my hands on. The chief goes through his assets and says, you know, he really can't pay it back. And he basically laughs at Portatuk saying, well, you were an idiot to lend me the money that you knew I wouldn't be able to pay back. And Portatuk says, well, you have something I can still, you can use to pay off the debt. And it says, I'll pay off the, the debt will be paid off if you give me your daughter. Ilsum. The chief rejects this and basically tosses Portatuk out in the snow. But Portatuk insists that the, after the chief's death, that the debts have to be repaid. And Elsu, who sort of is the heir now, uh, pays off, promises to pay off the debts. Although she doesn't have any more assets than her, her father had. And there's other debtors too, or there's other creditors too. So how is she going to pay this off? Well, she decides to sell herself off to pay the debts. During this auction, Portatuk gets involved in the bidding and he still wants her for his wife. Oh, one important point. During this previous conversation, she actually makes a vow that she'll never marry Portatuk. That's an important part of the way the story unfolds. During the auction, it goes back and forth. For a while, London teases that maybe she'll only get like a few thousand for it, not enough to pay off her debts. But eventually the price gets raised up to $26,000. So, and it's actually Portatuk who makes the final bid. So he overpays for Ilsung by about $10,000. So they sit down to deal with it and the debt's repaid, the $16,000, and she gets $10,000 in gold. And she actually uses deflation to, um, to get a little bit extra gold out of him. The debt's repaid, she gets $10,000. She uses this to pay off her some of her other debts and still has, I think, like five, $6,000 left over after all the debts are paid. But she must marry Portatuk, she's told. 
she pays with a balance of gold at 16 an ounce, which I think is sort of like $17 an ounce. So she's able to get a little bit extra gold out of it. She also uses some of the money to, to support the tribe and to make sure the tribe is well taken care of. Portatuk was actually scammed out of some of this money due to the deflation of the currency because the money was loaned out at like $17 an ounce and now the price was $16 an ounce. So he got doubly screwed by that. And it actually accounts to like $600 of, of extra money that, that he got cheated out of. But Elsu says she will not be this man's wife, but instead a dog. Yeah, you own me because that's the deal, but I won't be your wife. I vowed never to marry you, but you can be my dog. And she claims that because she'll be a dog, she can run away like a dog. And she, in fact, does this. She runs away. Elsu and Akun find each other, and they decide to be together, and they run off into the woods. Eventually, though, Portatuk chases her down. She is, a, after all, a, a dog. Uh, chased down by a hunting party and brought back. Portatuk brings her to a council and basically wants the council to judge the situation, claiming that she should be my wife. He proposes that he pays for Ilsun, and the men of the council are all dying of some kind of sickness, by the way, so it's kind of um, another example of this Western impact is disease coming into these communities, and they're all old and dying, and they're, they're seen as kind of the old. They are all old, but they're also old in the sense that they're dying and won't be around much more. Well, they'll make, be making decisions that will affect Elsu for the rest of her life. Elsu tells the council that she will continue to run away, that there's nothing Portatu can do to keep her around. Akun is asked what he paid for her, and he says he didn't pay anything for her. And Akun at the same time promises to kill Portatuk if he ever gets Elsu. So Portatuk finally make, has a kind of revelation and decides to give Elsu as a gift to Akun. He says, you know, you can have her. But before he hands her over, he shoots her in the ankles, crippling her for life. And the old men declare that this resolution is just. So um, a lot in this story to, to think about. Um, of course, at the heart of it, we have this idea that women being treated as property and owned. We have also the broader story of this, how the impact of, of the arrival of whites was very transformative to the society of, of these Eskimos, of these Indians. And debt and dependence on these consumer goods is a big part of that relationship. And then, um, of the course, the very horrible ending in which Portatuk would rather maim and, and cripple this woman than, than let her have a happy life with her lover. And then finally we have 1908's To Build a Fire. I assume anyone, you've all read this, um, or pretty much anyone who was ra raised in America has read this story and, and, and come across it. Um, but if you haven't, you probably should. It's, it's, really, I think, caps a lot of London's work, and that is the fail one of his major themes, which is the failure of radical individualism. And here it's personified by a man who recklessly and against better advice ventures out into the bitter cold by himself. He's got a dog, but he's basically alone. And you shouldn't do this kind of thing. He's actually, you know, I think it through flashbacks told that he shouldn't do this. It's bitterly cold. It's minus 50 to minus 70 degree Fahrenheit. And he measures the cold by like spitting 
and then it becomes ice before it hits the ground. That's how cold it is. During his walking, he gets his feet wet, and he's forced to stop and build this fire. And, you know, he has the basic idea how to do it, but he's inexperienced, and the cold burdens on his body, and he's not able to move as fast and work as fast as he needs to to build this fire. And so he fails to build this fire, fails to get it going, and then he makes a final dash, hoping he can run to his destination, hoping that running will warm his body. But he dies exhausted, cold, and even the dog leaves him at the end. So we read this story after spending all these weeks looking at London's major works, and we're reminded of the necessity of socialism. Without our brothers and sisters, we're all failed. We're all one failed fire away from disaster. So that's that's it. So I'm not going to say much more about this because I do assume most of you have, have read this tale, but it's it really is a capstone. It's a capstone for the Klondike Tales. I don't know if he wrote any more. It's the last we have in this collection by the Library of America. If he did write other Klondike stories after this, I don't know about them. But there, it, it does cap not just those Klondike stories, but a lot of the themes he had written up to this point. It's just that, you know, it's in the Sea Wolf, it's in White Fang, Call the Wild, the Iron Heel. All these stories remind us that the radical individual is not going to be able to make it, that there needs some solidarity. So essentially, we need socialism, is London's point. Um, all these tales were written that we looked at were written between 1899 and 1908. Most were written before 1902, though. So they reflect some of London's more youthful writing. And of course, they come out of his actual real experience in the Klondike. In fact, most of these were written before the Sea Wolf, before the Road, before the Iron Heel, and before Martin Eden. His first published story was The Man on the Trail, which was one of these Klondike stories. And like other writers that we looked at, such as uh, Melville and Steinbeck, London is drawing heavily from his experiences of, of his earliest writing. Of course, the Klondike Gold Rush that London participated in was an, just one in a long line of capitalist frontiers that promised advancement for all, but enriched but a small handful of people. Only one in 10 gold rushers found any gold. It was in most cases impossible for people without capital to make money mining gold in the bitterly cold Yukon. And it was even true in other gold rushes, like in the American West, in California, that the people who had capital got rich and the people who didn't could maybe make a living. They could find enough gold to survive and pay for their lodging and their survival, but not, not they wouldn't get the big thrust into to wealth through it. This is actually something that that TV series Deadwood did very well. I don't know if you've seen that show. It's, it's, it's of course, about the South Dakota gold rush. Um, and Deadwood were squatters, a squatter town in, in Indian lands in South Dakota. But that TV series, in the first couple seasons, it's really about these individual miners, at least in the first season. But by the second and third season, you have the arrival of, I think it's the Hearst company that come in with capital and foreign labor and they're able to like extract the wealth with all this technology right so it's the same in the Yukon though that the people who didn't have really the money to put up large-scale expeditions with capital behind them hydraulic mining you know took capital 
Now, yeah, you may have this idea, and Jack London actually wrote a story about this called All Gold Canyon, All Gold Canyon, which we'll look at in the next episode. But, you know, the people with the pans and the shifting through the water, finding gold and, you know, eventually finding their claim. Yeah, a few people could do that, but it was pretty rare that this was successful. The people with capital were the most successful. Many who found small amounts of gold wasted their wealth looking for more. Most would work for others. Most people in these were actually employed in a, with, by, by people with a more capital and wealth. And we see characters like that. Uh, male mood kid. A lot of the Indians in these tales are actually working for more wealthy folk. I mean, what did it take? You had to you had to have a lot of wood to burn and thaw the ground before you could even start digging. Um, in fact, we don't see much gold in any of these tales. I think the first tale has gold. And, and then it's just a story about this guy who struck it rich. And he actually ends up having to steal his money back from a casino. But there's really no other gold that we actually see get our hands on. Well, I guess in the wit of Portatuk, there's there's a lot of money. There's gold there. But he got it mostly through trading, I think. Gold is a background character, not really a direct mover of the plot in most cases. So what are the themes here in these Klondike stories that we can get out of? Um, you know, I, when I look at a novel, I like to end with some of the themes. Uh, but I'll do a little bit of that here. What do we have here? Well, we got the working class frontier. The Klondike tales show a very vibrant and diverse life on a working class frontier. It's an international, it's, it's multiracial, multiethnic, especially with the interactions between whites and Indians. Now, these aren't settled in ethnic neighborhoods like you had in maybe Chicago, New York. These immigrant workers made a meager life together. And we have a lot of really brilliant and wonderful passages. In fact, the very first tale, The Man on the Trail, is, starts with this international community of workers talking and sharing stories. Like the sailors on the ship that we see in the Sea Wolf, diversity was a part of life. Uh, this isn't a multicultural celebration of difference. It's just that they worked together and they they interacted. And so it's not really multicultural. So I don't want to call it that. It's it's just that this frontier was working class and, and all frontiers were diverse. You know, in the American history, they they always had that diversity. Even in the American South, early Southwest, the, the slave frontier, you know, you had blacks and whites. Of course, some were, most were slaves. Most of the labor was done by slaves, but it was a frontier experience that was inter, interracial. It was a multilingual environment, certainly in the Yukon, French, Indian languages, and English. It was culturally flexible. So there's all this great scholarship on this ship, on the French-Canadian fur traders, and other frontier experiences that have this international character. Um, and these type of workers couldn't afford to ignore anything that seemed to work. So they had to be culturally flexible and embrace from other cultures if it seemed to work. Now, a big theme here in these stories is the contextual nature of morality. The law of the state is quite distant. Dis distant. You have only one of these where there's a, a formal law. Well, in the man on the trail, the law comes to track down this guy. And it's 
and it's, it's ignored. It's outright ignored. And then you got the League of Old Men, in which the law is used basically to atone for a long dead you know, crime from the from the big past. You know, this old terrorist is dragged up and executed. You know, but it's, you know, it's it's after the Wild West kind of period of, of this frontier. The state is pretty distant. Where it exists is pretty useful. People are forced to move beyond good and evil. So you have like the wisdom of the trail, not law, right? Where we have the God of our fathers. And, and it's a much more brutal day-to-day -day contextualized morality. Batard is a story of a vile man and his vile dog. The futility of traditional religion and the tendency of frontiersmen to embrace naturalistic religions is played with in God of his fathers. We have brutal frontier justice in the League of the Old Men. Even the morality of leaving the injured to die to take on new calculus in the brutal Yukon frontiers there, such as in Wisdom of the Trail, right, where people have to be left behind and killed because you can't survive um, with a bigger group. So the weakest have to be left behind. This is a contextualized morality. And I think London believes that capitalism is rife with this contextualized morality, right? The f there's nothing moral about the factory system. There's nothing moral about exploitation of, of capitalism. It's just the way it is. And so it, it's tied here with a lot of social Darwinism, certainly. The story's open with a rejection of Henry Ward Beecher's temperance through a quote-unquote bacchanalia chorus. This is an actual quote from, let me check where. Oh yeah, this is To the Man on the Trail, the very first of these stories. And we have a rejection of, of the morality of established civilization. And I don't know what the tune to this song would be, but it's a drinking song. There's Henry Ward Beecher and Sunday school teachers all drink of the sassafras root. But you bet all the same if you had its right name. It's the juice of the forbidden fruit. Oh, the juice, juice of the forbidden fruit. Oh, the juice of the forbidden fruit. But you bet all the same. If it has the right name, it's the juice of the forbidden fruit. Uh, and that's one of the main Luke kid stories. So the morality of New England certainly has no place here. The morality of Henry Ward Beecher, who was a temperance active activist, if, if you don't know. Connected to Catherine Beecher and Harry Beecher Stowe and, and the, the, those writers. Okay, a big one here is conflict with the environment. London was an environmentalist in the sense that he believed environment made morality and made help, you know, made led people to certain decisions. You know, he doesn't like mysticize the nature though. He tends to see nature as pretty pretty brutal, and and, and certainly that's that's the case in White Fang in these stories. The Call of the Wild and White Fang show how violence emerged from this dog-eat-dog -dog capitalism or the natural world of deprivation, especially in White Fang. You have deprivation and scarcity. While not an ideal test case, since these gold miners failed by the thousands and died by the hundreds in a climate and environment, um, people lived and prospered in this environment for centuries, actually, the Indians. So whites didn't learn enough from the Indians, actually, it seems to me. London does try to does seem to mistrust the potential of the natural world to provide what we need unaided. So he he doesn't think much of kind of this return to nature. So when I say he's an environmentalist, I don't mean because he wants to have a pristine, preserved environment. I, he's an environmentalist in that our world comes out of our the environment we're in. Right? And we see this, of course, in White Fang, 
where when White Fang goes to San Francisco, he's in a different world, right? And in the Call of the Wild, it works the other way. But we are we are what our environment makes us. When environment does show up, it creates periodic famines or a type of primitive barbarism. Writing in an era of social Darwinism, of progress, of industry, there's a suspicion here of the natural world. So I'm not sure what to get to. I mean, my opinion is, yeah, we, we need to have ecology and environment, certainly. Uh, environmentalism is important. But we, we're not going to get there through mysticizing and romanticizing nature as something that's not. I, I think we're going to get there through science. We're going to solve this ecological problem if we do. I'm not entirely certain we will. But if we do, it's going to be because of science. It's going to be because of technology. It's not going to be some return to nature that gets us there. So I'm not by any means a primitivist. And, you know, I think that's kind of where Jack London is, although he wouldn't have been aware of of climate change and environmental destruction. In fact, he thinks environment is pretty tough. Nature is pretty tough and enduring and pretty indifferent to human life. The total conquest of nature is not something I think he fully foresees here. Now, if nature were to write a short story, would it have the same bleakness, futility and pessimism of to build a fire? Um, but where man is the threat. I mean, that's what maybe that's what ecological writers may write today. Anyways, um, the failure of individualism. Now we the I looked at these stories chronologically because that's how they're placed in the in the book. The story starts with a celebration of working class solidarity in the Man on the Trail, and it ends with the solitary death at the end of To Build a Fire. So there, is there a growing pessimism here about the nature of life on this frontier? Um, but certainly we're better off as a community, London seems to be saying, and that the individual is the one who's most doomed. So I'd almost suggest we shouldn't read To Build a Fire Alone. We should read it next to some of these other tales, which show the potential and of community as being a way out of this, of the dilemma of the character in To Build a Fire. Of course, that's not how we read it. Usually we just read To Build a Fire. You know, and then we move on to other stories. Very few people read these works systematically, actually. One of the reasons I like the Library of America so much is it forces you to, to read these authors a little bit more systematically than you know a story here and there. Now, modern capitalism that London had so much contempt for is an environment no less harsh and indifferent than what was faced these gold miners, certainly. So we should choose community and brotherhood over trying to go it alone. So there, I'm exposing my socialism for all of you listeners. If you didn't know by now, you weren't probably paying attention, but you know, I'm I'm basically on the side of socialism. Uh, even though it, there was that recent report that like millennials are all coming out, like 50% or something are anti-capitalist in in surveys. I'm older than them, but you know, I'm on, I'm on their side there. And on Jack London's side, actually, the, the economy we live in today is a lot more in common with Jack London's than, than maybe the, the 1950s and 60s where you had strong unions, for instance, and a little bit more of a social safety net and a little stronger idea that there's kind of a commons and there's a role, a role for the public. This stuff is out of fashion politically these days. And currently, we're debating another tax cut to the 1%, 
which will only perpetuate and, and increase economic inequality. We really are entering a new Gilded Age. So look, looking back at these stories from the past last Gilded Age, I think are impo is important. Okay, so um, that does it for the Klondike Tales. Uh, tell me what you think of these stories. I'd love to hear your point of view and your opinions. Um, we're going to keep going on with Jack London's stories, but we'll, we'll, we'll be looking at specifically at, at many of his later stories, the stories that are more urban. Many of them are in the Pacific. A few deal with Native Americans. A few deal with the American West more broadly. So it's a mix, but there's 13 of them. And in the last two episodes on Jack London, I'll be looking at those tales. But in the meantime, tell me what you think. Or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you and your experiences with Jack London. I'm reaching, reaching, the, reaching the end of my adventure with, with Jack London. I'd love to hear about your own personal experiences with this, with this writer. Uh, and thank you again for listening. I, you know, I really enjoy doing this, and I'm glad you, you... I hope you're getting something out of it. So I'll see you next time. Comme il était pas habile pour prendre les chars à full steam, tombant plein de face sur la traque, il a pas pu se rendre au Klondike.